This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and salut Babette! My name is Vivian Langford, and with me in the radio studio at 3CR is Andy Britt on panel. Hi, Andy. How are you going, Viv? I'm going well, thank That's you. Silly. Would you like to acknowledge, uh, do the acknowledgement to country, please, Andy? No worries. Beyond Zero Emissions is proud to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. They are the traditional owners of the land we are broadcasting from and would like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you. Now, listeners, Beyond Zero Emissions is an educational and research think tank. This show reports on what is happening in the community to make those things that we research come to life. We're to make this transition from the fossil fuels of the 19th century to the new and safe climate that we'll get if we get a move on. So this is episode three in a series we've been doing building up knowledge around why there needs to be a global strike for climate action on September the 20th. We talk to the students and the teachers, we talk to the trade unionists, and tonight we'll go to the front lines. To the people of the Pacific Island Islands who have called on our Prime Minister um, to really... <sighs> changed the regime of puffing out so much so many emissions locally here and also exporting them through our coal and gas um, he's been called insulting and condescending because he refused to reconsider our position on coal at the Pacific Islands Forum so we'll hear all about that then we'll go to the frontline action on coal in Queensland to hear why people are taking weeks out of their normal lives to go up to this camp and lock onto the Adani machinery, which at the moment is just clearing land, but that means cutting down trees and preparing for the mega mine whose exported emissions must be prevented. We'll hear from Adrian Baragaba then, whose traditional land is in the Galilee Basin. That's where the Carmichael mine is, is intended to be, and that's his traditional land. You cannot take that away from people. It's, it's sacred to them. Uh, I wanted to bring your attention, especially listeners tonight, to the frontline role that Indigenous people are taking. And I found a, a quote from an elder from Canada, from the Lillawat area called Lillawat, and he said this, The traditional rules and laws of Indigenous people would never allow this stripping of resources from our traditional homelands on this planet at a net cost to future generations and to life itself. And that was in a book called Wisdom of the Elders, which was co-authored by David Suzuki. Now, he's a, he's a scientist, he's a geneticist, and he had this interesting thing about why we, including our Prime Minister, who just seems so hard-hearted and cannot take in that local people, Indigenous people, people who've been there for thousands of years, are saying, stop, you're going the wrong way. And Suzuki said this, the very success of science in our lifetime, in granting modern industrial societies unprecedented power, has left us psychologically dissociated from our natural surroundings. 
And I don't know if that rings a bell with you listeners, but I think it does with me because I don't think I care about country as much as people like the ones we're going to interview tonight. And uh, the decisions that are made if you don't care are horrendous now in the modern time. So that's why I'm taking you then to the front lines of the pipeline wars in the USA where Winona LaDuke, um, she's a First Nations person, she talks about what's happened since Standing Rock, how many of those pipe, uh, tar sands pipelines they've defeated and how many have been held up in the courts. It's quite positive what she says. I was surprised. And lastly, we'll talk to two more unionists because, after all, they are on the front lines too. Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers and Terry John Herbert from the Maritime Union of Workers. Of course, Australia's Prime Minister is not going to suddenly sign on to a declaration which will shut down the coal industry. Neither will Adani suddenly have a change of heart and Exxon in the tar sands is not going to suddenly decide to export renewable energy instead. But on the front lines and in the courts, there are people just like you delaying all of that until those assets become unviable or stranded. And to sustain us, I'll finish with another quote from that elder in Lillooet in Canada who said, Our elders tell us we have to do more than save what is left of our traditional homeland, this earth. We need to contribute to an overall change of mind. And so in that spirit, our first guest is from the Edmund Rice Centre Pacific Calling Partnership, someone who's very much into changing minds. And his name is Vince Sicari, and I'd like to welcome him to the uh, Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Are you there, Vince? Hello, Vivian. I certainly am. Thank you for taking our call. Look, um, you make connections between people on the islands and concerned Australians, and I'd like to know what the Pacific leaders are saying at the Pacific Islands Forum to you? Vivian, basically the the Pacific Islands know what the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the foremost, that's a UN body, the foremost scientific body in the world, is saying to them that if uh, the average temperature in the world goes beyond 1.5 degrees, they have very little chance of surviving. So this is actually being described as an existential threat, existential by the United Nations. So these islands know that unless resolute climate action is taken, basically they are being told they will not be surviving Probably the latest scientific uh, thinking is that beyond mid-century. The latest uh, scientific uh, paper by Kurt Storlazzi says that by mid-century, unless we do something very, very significant in reducing greenhouse gases, unless we do that by 2050 or so, around that time, the islands will become uninhabitable. That's the word he uses. Yeah, well, that's 30 years ahead for them. They know that. And yet at this Pacific Islands Forum recently, I think it it became a bit more transparent what is at stake 
to um, our representatives. But I wonder, you know, so, it's shaming to us uh, concerned citizens in Australia, but the, the very hard-headed response, uh, for example, from our Minister for the Pacific, Alex Hawke, he said, oh, you know, kind of derisory comment. He said, oh, Labor would never have stood up to the ridiculous demands from Pacific Islanders to um, immediately end all coal power and mining. And it was like laughing at them. And he, I want to know from you, like, how can we make them, these hardheads, how can we make their cha- them change their mind? Well, that's a very good question, Vivian. That's uh, what we spend uh, most of our time trying to do. Uh, to try and change minds and hearts. And we do that by going to Canberra and talking to politicians. In fact, uh, uh, we have a visit scheduled for the 17th and 18th of uh, September. So we talk to politicians. We talk to anyone who will listen to us, actually. Um, We have uh, uh, brought... Uh, a, a former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, here to um, talk to people. He's had um, significant media interest very recently, actually. Uh, he's coming to Australia today. Actually, he's on his oh, way good. today. Yes. Yeah, he I... will be in Canberra on uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Well, he... so I heard him to... on the Radio National this morning, and that was my next question because I really like him. We interviewed him a long time ago when he was the Prime Minister. He was very clear about it. But today on Radio National, he said, your policy cannot be dictated by the coal industry. Well, you couldn't get clearer than that. And then Frank Bainimarama from Fiji said, Australia's attitude was insulting and condescending. And I wonder, do you think it's only because we fear China gaining more power in that region that will make us take them seriously? When you're down in Canberra in September, you're going to start talking, you know, tin tacks about that. Look, uh, the Pacific Islands have a very long and um, strong tradition of, uh, um, you might say, being considering themselves a family in the Pacific together with Australia and New Zealand. Um, the um, Prime Minister used that term, family. But as they said, when you, if you want to consider yourself part of a family, well, then you've got to love each other. You've got to do good to each other. You, you've got to be watch out for the other person in the family. Now, if they feel that we, are, we as Australians are not watching out for them, at the most basic desire is to simply continue existing. If they feel that we are not looking out for them, obviously they're going to look elsewhere. There, there is, they, we, we will leave them no other option. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know why they don't think of us as an aggressive power because really it's our emissions and our exported emissions, as they're saying, our policies dictated by the fossil fuel industry, that is hastening their end and um, I, I sort of feel we have to get real about this I wasn't I won't I think it'd be a naive person who would expect um, Prime Minister Morrison to just go there and say oh yes look I rode to Damascus experience I, I'll change completely and we're going to shut down our coal industry in 10 in 10 years we're not going to expect that sort of flip so no well we're not, and they do have a track record on this. But what we can demand of them as Australians 
and as our representatives, is for them to honour their international agreements. Now, we have signed on to the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord is aiming to keep the the, uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees uh, at, at best, but (laughs) that's going to be an enormous challenge. Now, having signed on to the Paris Accord, it means that we really should not be obfuscating. Like, like only recently, uh, the government has been talking of using the Kyoto credits to achieve the 26%, the paltry 26% decrease in in greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, already we are not being ambitious and we are looking for ways of getting out of that, which is absolutely ridiculous. And and the Pacific Islands have said that to us. They don't want us to use the Kyoto, the so-called Kyoto credits. Um, They are just a loophole. They They are not being sincere by by talking about the Kyoto credits. Mm. Um, we should be... The, and I want to make this clear too, Vivian. The 26 to 28% decrease in emissions that we've signed up to, um, they are supposed to be only the start. The, the, the United Nations, the IPCC, has clearly said... We've got to increase our ambitions with relation to greenhouse gas cuts. In other words, even if the whole world complied with their current current accord uh, promises, the the global warming would increase by at least two and a half to three degrees, which is disastrous and would mean the certain destruction of the Pacific Islands. Yeah. Well, could I just uh, tell the listeners something from your press release by Phil Blendinning? I thought it was a particularly good analogy because we need to tell stories on the radio. We need people to see it Mm. clearly. And Phil Blendinning, who was over there at the forum, he said, look, here's an example. If your neighbour's house is burning, do you turn up with a petrol hose and make the fire worse? Or do you arrive Mm. with a garden hose and make a token, inadequate effort to put the fire out while the house continues to burn. And Phil Glendinning says, this year Australia has come to the Pacific Island Forum with both hoses, you know? Yes. Well, what, exactly. do you, what did he mean? What, well, what, what he means by that is that uh, our emissions in Australia have actually been increasing over the last three or four years rather than decreasing. That's what he means by going there with that hose. Mm. That's pouring petrol in the fire. We're supposed to be reducing our emissions, not increasing them. And then uh, we go over there saying, oh, we are going to uh, decrease our emissions, even though there's absolutely no evidence of the emissions going down. We are going to decrease our emissions, we say, but what, uh, to what level? And this is where the Kyoto exemptions, let's call them, come in. They're suddenly saying, oh, we're not even going to do what we promised to do in the Paris Accord. We're going to use this, uh, you know, uh, mirrors and and smoke trick 
to to get out of even that. Yes, so I that's know. Coming there with a with a garden hose. And I, I think it was even worse by saying, "Oh, we're going to give you five hundred million in development aid," and then to make it worse, the acting prime minister, while Morrison was away, he was down at Wagga Wagga. Uh, Michael McCormick, his comments were recorded, and he said he was annoyed at Pacific people pointing the finger at Australia's resource sector, wanting us to shut it down so they can survive. Well, I thought that was breathtaking. Shut it down so they can survive. Why would anyone want to survive? And he said there's no question they will continue to survive because many of their workers come here to pick fruit. I thought that was pure contempt. What did you think? Well, look, I'd better not tell you on radio what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Probably you'd have to bleep me out. Yeah, but I I think uh, this is giving great offence in the Pacific, don't you? This sort of thing. It is. In my opinion, it is showing a callous and cruel disregard to the Pacific Islands. And that's how they have seen it. I can tell you I've spoken to them and that's how they see it. They see it as being almost a neo-colonialist frame of mind. Almost, yes. Yes. Um, So, look, um, I don't want to concentrate on that. What I want to concentrate is what... What are they actually asking Australia to do? They are not asking Australia to do anything out of Australia's own um, promises to the world community. They have said to the world community that Australia has said that we will decrease our, our carbon emissions. Well, let's do that. And, and may I say, this is very important because sometimes uh, um, some shock jocks say, well, Australia doesn't matter, you know, our, our emissions are so small in, 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 you know, in the world community. Well, can I say to you that if we start thinking like that and we don't work as a world community with cohesion and, and if, uh, you know, one nation after another starts peeling off and saying they're not going to comply with their, the Paris Accord, well, it's going to be all over for the Pacific Islands. Yeah, thank you. It's mendacious anyway, but thank you very much for, for that insight. We've just been talking to Vince Sicari from the Edmund Rice Centre Pacific Calling Partnership. So thank you, Vince. I'll um, have to go on to the next person. We're talking about front lines today, so we've talked about the Pacific, and now um, we're going thank to... Thank you very much, Vivian. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, now let's uh, let's go on to the frontline action on coal in Queensland. Now I can't tell you where they are. It's you know the, these people who get into terrible trouble. What they're doing, um, they're taking big risks being there. And so I've got a little bit of audio sent to me by another three um, CR presenter uh, from Earth Matters, and she sent me this audio, and uh, she told me that on the edge of someone, you know, they're locking onto machinery and on the machinery, it was on the thing they were locking onto, it said these words, one life, one chance, resist and defend. And if that thrills you, listeners in Melbourne, it thrills your heart, please support this group called FLAC, F-L-A-C, Frontline Action on Coal. So let's hear from Lyle and Anita. Yeah, well, this is the sort of stuff that we do to look after the planet, look after the reef, look after the whole kit and caboodle. And do you want to say who you are, that you're Uncle Lyle? Or you? Yeah. yeah, my name's Lyle Davis from far south coast of New South Wales. Okay. Thanks, Lyle. Come back any time. You, you get another 
you get another inspiration. I'm a business development officer from Brisbane. I'm up here because I am fighting to save my way of life. Climate change and the consequences of climate change are going to destroy our world and our civilization. And I want healthcare in my old age, quite frankly. <laughs> That's not going to be there if we don't have food and we don't have water. We're certainly not going to have hospitals. We're not going to have medical care. Australia needs a, a quality climate change policy in place so that we can actually take appropriate steps to prevent this disaster. The government doesn't have one, uh, so I'm up here working with these people to make one. And the first step in the policy is no new coal, so we've got to stop this mine. Have you ever done anything like this before? <laughs> no, actually no. Um, but the reality is just, it's really scary. So I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone, you know. When the fight is this important, you, you do the hard things. But there's also um, several really nicely set up kind of relaxation spaces that you can go to get away from the hustle and bustle because you would be surprised. I thought, oh, all right, I'm going to a camp. There's going to be a lot of downtime. There is not a lot of downtime. Um, you are busy all day doing useful, valuable things that contribute to this fight. And you can choose at any time which things you want to be doing and you can step back and have a bit of time to yourself if you need to. And they've very carefully made sure that everybody knows that and that you have that space. So you can go to your own campsite if you want, or you can go to one of these beautiful little um, set up areas to just go and have a chill out away from the, away from the hustle and bustle. So now we're uh, on the phone to the front line um, to talk to someone who's there right now to talk to Andy Payne. Hello, hello, Andy. Hello, Vivian. Thanks for being on the show today. I'd like to know, why are people risking arrest up there? Because for the people in Melbourne, they may know about Adani, they know about the um, people starting to cut down the trees, but they've no idea why anyone would get arrested for that. Yeah, I guess there's a couple of reasons why people are up here uh, risking arrest. One is that the Adani Carmichael Mine, which is a great threat to our climate well-being with uh, potential billions of greenhouse gas emissions and opening up the Galilee Basin to further coal mines is being constructed and in the wake of the federal election there doesn't seem to be much political opposition anymore and a sort of last-ditch effort to stop that mine going ahead is to go up and put what we have in the way, put our bodies in the way. The other reason people are risking arrest is that there's a great tradition of civil disobedience in this country and around the world as a way of social change and we look at that tradition and see that it is possible to change the world for the better by getting out there, uh, causing a bit of trouble and um, physically stopping construction as well as bringing this, keeping this issue in the nation's eyes. And also we've had a recent anniversary of Terrania Creek, haven't we? And um, people will remember the Franklin Dam protest. So this has got an honourable tradition in Australia. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, last Friday was the anniversary of the beginning of the Terrania Creek blockade in northern New South Wales. And we did it to celebrate that. We <laughs> went and somebody locked themselves to a, a drill rig up here. Um, but, yeah, things like the Franklin River and... Uh, Jabaluka, of course, uranium mine, and more recently, coal gas, and a lot of forests around from, you know, Goolungook in southeastern Victoria to the Florentine in Tasmania and Chilundi in New South Wales. We 
Australia does have a great tradition of using these kind of tactics to stop work and eventually stop uh, destructive practices. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, um, I've been reading up on who else is doing some work, and I wonder if it, if you think it's enough. Um, I've noticed there have been sit-ins all around the country against this engineering company that works with the Dani. It's called GHD. So they've had sit-ins there. Then Extinction Rebellion's had quite a few people arrested, 72 in Brisbane, and then they got 10 from the GHT sit-in. And some people tried to make a citizen's arrest, even of Matt Canavan, the resources minister, uh, for climate crimes. And then there was someone this morning, I got a phone call, they've suspended someone from the William Jolly Bridge in Brisbane, uh, stopping four lanes of traffic. And the demand there was that the COAG ministers will tell the truth about climate inaction. So I think there's things happening all over and it's not reported, of course, always on the news. But um, do you start feeling a picture of people out there in the cities and elsewhere supporting you there on the front line? Yeah, well, it's great seeing those kind of actions around the country. And I think uh, there's a lot of people in different cities uh, that are very concerned and doing brilliant work. And, of course, climate change is an issue that will affect everybody, whether you live in the city or country or central Queensland or the Pacific Islands. And so there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work. And we've put a call out for people, as well as doing things in our cities, to come up here if they're able to and, try to get in the way of some of the the bulldozers and machines up here that are getting to work on the Adani mine because Adani is planning to clear 450 hectares of, uh, I guess, native habitat in the next three months. And so it's a very short window of time to get up here and try to stop that from happening. And so as well as people doing things in the seas, which is great, we've had a lot of people come up here in the last week to join us and we're hoping we'll get a few more to try to stop this. Yeah, and we played that little bit of audio at the front from someone from the uh, south, down the south coast of New South Wales and someone also from Brisbane. So people are coming for small amounts of time or for a longer time. Could you just tell the Melbourne listeners, you don't have to give anything away, but um, where to go to find out about it, who to contact and what to expect? Yeah, so we have a camp up here. It's called Camp Bindi. It's near Bowen uh, in sort of central north Queensland um, and it's a pretty good setup. We're pretty comfortable here and certainly a lot of good people up here um, and so our people have come from around the country and uh, come to the camp where we have we uh, a great community living together and working on things and uh, meeting to do all the elements of this. Some people going out and uh, blockading, getting in the way, doing those kind of actions, but some people working on media, helping around the camp, getting skilled up. Uh, and so there's all kinds of elements that people can come and help with, and uh, we certainly want to empower people to to try to get involved and try to stop climate disasters like the Adani mine. Okay. Well, we'll put this on our website, just Frontline Action on Coal. Will they find everything they need there, like who to phone about how to get there, for example, and what to bring? Yeah, for sure. On the Frontline Action on Coal website, which is frontlineaction.org, there's all kinds of info there about the campaign and about the camp, somewhere to contact, and also a, a, a list of kind of the frequently asked questions of, 
what uh, what it's like up here and, and what to bring. Okay. And so right. we certainly welcome everybody. Okay, thank you very much, Andy. There was also something called the Grey Power um, Climate Protectors, and I think they're sending up some people from Melbourne and Sydney. So thank you very much for um, doing what you're doing and for talking to us today. Bye-bye. No worries. Thank you, Viv. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Andy. Um, now, uh, what are we doing next? We're... We're, we've So we've covered the Pacific Islands, we've looked at the frontline action up there in Queensland and I think now we're going to uh, just have a little uh, short grab from Adrian Burragubba. Now he wasn't unable to, was unable to come to the show today but <clears throat> I've got this little clip from uh, a speech he gave at Bob Brown's rally just before the um, election and it was in Canberra and how they invited Adrian Burragubba to speak. So we'll just hear him and then we'll go to Renona Lope. It's a part of our dreaming which is being affected and um, I want to pay respect to um, the Bob Brown Foundation and and Bob himself for um, allowing allowing me to have a platform to bring uh, the truth to people because there's so much lies and deception out there and uh, we don't agree with uh, this fraudulent misrepresentation of what the First Nations people are being represented by this um, this fake government, because uh, they're running they're running a um, um, a protection racket around uh, Adani. On two occasions in 2012, all of the Wanganjagalingu people sent Adani packing. We kicked them out, and they didn't have an Ilua then. And then again in 2014, we kicked them out and we said, you're not going to have our land and there's no agreement. No means no. No contract, no consent. We haven't consented to that mine and it's not going to happen. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. And now we're known a Ludduke. Um, it's courtesy of Democracy Now, where she talks about the four pipelines. She's a First Nations person, and she takes us to the Alberta tar sands, which they had four huge pipelines crisscrossing the United States, which a lot of that is Indian Territory. But four of those pipelines have more or less been stopped or caught up in the courts. And the fifth one is still a front line for her and the Ojibwe Nation. But, you know, she's got hope that they'll stop that too. So Winona LaDuke. So we all got a lesson at Standing Rock. We got a pretty good lesson. And, you know, since that time, pipelines have not gone so well, you know, for any of these corporations. So just to give you a context, about a year and a half ago, there were five tar sands pipelines proposed out of Canada. Now, think of Canada with that pretty guy, Trudeau. You know, they might as well just name that pipeline after him he just bought. I mean, he talks about signing up with Paris, but, you know, Canada is a huge polluter, and if the tar sands come online, that's pretty much game over. But that's what they're trying to do. Just to give you this context, um, about a year and a half ago, there were five pipelines proposed out of the tar sands. Tar sands is a landlocked mass of sand that has some oil in it. Super expensive stuff, super, you know, really bad for the environment. One pipeline was called Energy East. That was to go from Alberta to New Brunswick. The second pipeline was called the Northern Gateway. That was to go from Alberta to the Pacific Coast. The third pipeline was called Trans Mountain, Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain, the fourth Keystone, and the fifth pipeline is called Enbridge Line 3. Five big pipelines to try to get some oil out that's landlocked. So if you look at what's happened, About a year ago, 
the um, Energy East pipeline did not get approved by the National Energy Board. Nobody, it turns out, wanted a pipeline crossing Canada. Surprise, surprise. Montreal didn't want it. Nobody wanted it. Second pipeline, Northern Gateway, Enbridge's Northern Gateway, the gem of their, of their Canadian projects, was not approved by the National Energy Board. That leaves three pipelines. <laughs> One pipeline known as the Kinder Morgan, facing massive opposition, not only from First Nations, but by the good citizens of British Columbia and the premier of British Columbia, opposed, ended up in court because they did not consult with First Nations. The federal court in Canada, the appeals court, revoked all of the permits, nullified all of the permits on Kinder Morgan's pipeline, known as the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The same day that that happened, Premier Trudeau purchased that pipeline, hoping, you know, for like $4.9 billion. I think the price tag is now something like $15 billion, so that he would, you know, that Canada would have its own personal pipeline to, you know, cross the territory. You know, I think it's kind of a dodgy investment myself, uh, judging by the courts and, and judging by the fact that the courts stopped pipelines. Keystone Pipeline, you know, as you know, Trump moved ahead, sprinkled his little fairy dust. That pipeline was stopped again in the federal court in Montana. That should be a year, two years, who knows how long, if they are ever able to meet the conditions. I mean, social movements and lawyers are who stop pipelines. Social movements and lawyers. This leaves one pipeline that is still considered somewhat viable. That pipeline is Enbridge's Line 3. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Sento il fischio del vapore, mio amore che va via. Sento il fischio del vapore, mio amore che va via. Ed è partito per la balia, chissà quando ritornerà. Ed è partito per la balia, chissà quando ritornerà. Sta primavera con la squadra insanguinata. Ritornerà sta primavera con la squadra insanguinata. E se mi trova già la maritata, con che pena che dolore. E se mi trova già maritata, con che pena che dolore. Sarà piuttosto se la mangiare, ma l'amore la voglio fare. 
to Kavisha Marcella, who's one of my favourite singers, and I love that song. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on Radio 3CR, and tonight we're looking at Indigenous people and their friends on the front line of climate action. This is Episode 3 in a series to build momentum for the September the 20th strike and Global Week of Climate Action. Really, it is global, listeners. You know, you'll be joining something very big if you come along on September the 20th. Also on the front lines are trade unionists. Our next guest is from the National Union of Workers and they represent the people who pick our fruit on the farm. Those ones that the guy from Wagga Wagga, um, I forget his name uh, now, he uh, he said that they could just come from the Pacific Islands and pick uh, fruit. Well, I know the conditions that p- fruit pickers get here are very, very different in different states and very difficult and it's not a guaranteed good income. So uh, um, NUW's Tim um, uh, Tim will speak to us, uh, Tim Kennedy, about uh, some of the work that, that those people do and also they have workers out on the oil rigs and how all of these people are prepared to support the strike on September the 20th. Tim Kennedy. The reason I invited Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers to speak to us today is this statement. It's time for our movement to think big and take the lead. Well-paid union jobs with a future rest not on pretending the climate emergency doesn't exist, but in positioning Australia to be a renewable energy superpower, exporting clean energy to the world. And Beyond Zero Emissions has written many papers on this and would thoroughly endorse that idea. So welcome, Tim. Thank you, Vivian. Could you please unpack that for us? how your union and other unions are going to take the lead for the future? Well, for us, um, it's a fundamental question because uh, the issue of taking action to deal with the climate crisis affects workers, and that tends to get a lot of coverage in the media. But the response to take no action or inaction on the climate crisis is fundamentally worse for working people. So we represent workers... uh, in all sorts of sectors that are impacted by the climate crisis that the world is going through at the moment. So, for example, a factory opened by a multinational called Nestle in Dennington in southwestern Victoria 110 years ago uh, just decided to close its doors in the last month, and for the fundamental reason is uh, drought. Ongoing drought means there's not enough milk supply to process uh, milk in that part of southwestern Victoria. So... We see that in our dairy industry, ongoing severe droughts are undermining that. 
We also see it in the fact that we are organising workers in the uh, horticultural supply chain and it has an international dimension. So not only is there an issue about water, making certain that people can actually grow sustainable crops, but we have many of the workers who work in those crops come from our um, South Pacific neighbours. They come here because essentially they need to get decent work and those those countries they come from will be the first affected to go underwater, if you like, as, as the climate crisis worsens. So there's an international dimension uh, and as a fundamental worker um, worker decency dimension. That is, you know, we need to confront the fact that if we don't deal with these issues, what type of jobs are our kids going to have? What type of meaningful work will they have in the future? Well, I'm impressed by your union because I went to the Labor Party conference in Adelaide uh, just before Christmas and there was a, a marvellous session with them, those overseas workers there, and they were handed out celery and blueberries and strawberries to everybody and we all had to stand up and show what we had like. I had a piece of celery and then the worker who had picked the celery stood up and talked about their wages and conditions, which you are working for, but sound like very woeful and a lot of people will be horrified to hear um, what their conditions are. So could you tell us, listeners might be interested to know the diversity of your membership. You're not just in farm work, but what other workers are covered by your um, union and how is climate change affecting them? Yeah, so, I mean, our union is actually in the process of uh, our members are voting right now to form a new union, the United Workers Union, with United Voice, and we hope to be a union of over 155,000 nationally. But the type of areas that our workers work in is, is in fundamental food production, uh, pharmaceutical production. We're in the energy area, so we're, we're involved in you know uh, oil refining and the like. So our, our members and workers are in those areas that are... That have to change. So there's a there's a transition in the way that we derive our energy in the world occurring. I mean, Australia's been pretty chaotic about it, but that energy transition is happening. Our workers will be subject to that, who are members of our union. Automation is coming to the big warehouses and manufacturing food plants that our members work at. And we need to be able to deal with these challenges, especially in the context of the climate emergency, because... Uh, the one voice that is not being heard in how we actually transition in a just way in this is, is the voice of workers. And so it's very easy for the populist right to create, a, uh, to create a, a situation where if you want to support working people, you have to support the mine and Adani or, or nothing else. And yeah. so it's, it's a cruel choice that's been put in front of working people. And our union believes that uh, we all live on the same planet and we also need to confront these issues because so, we work in every sector. Yeah. Well, look, why would your well-paid members of the oil and gas industry, why would they support the students who are inviting us to stand with them to close down the fossil fuel industry, basically? And, um, you know, they're doing Stop Adani and Go for 100, you know, very simple slogans. But why would your members in that sort of area go to a strike on September the 20th? I mean, how would they square it with themselves? That's their bread and butter. Yeah, well, that's the nature of a large democratic union because at the moment, uh, put to them like that, they probably wouldn't support it. What, what, they, what they want is, is certainty in their lives and some hope that they actually will have a stake in the future and do it in a way that's just. So uh, it's, a, it's going to be a long conversation inside our union about how workers in the oil and gas industry are able to transition uh, and to be workers in the next generation of, of 
energy transition and, and production, whether that be renewable hydrogens or what have you. But it, it's going to be a real challenge for Civian because uh, we can ignore it and just say everything just stays the same and we'll, when we get locked into that climate inaction or as a democratic organisation that actually wants a future for the next generation and also wants a future for workers now, we actually have to have these conversations, educate ourselves and find a way to participate in the political debate rather than to have people do all that thinking for us and impose outcomes on working people. Well, sure. Well, what plans are being written inside your union and with others to make sure that workers are not stranded alongside the stranded assets that we hope will be the fossil fuel industry? Well, a number of the things that we're looking at at the moment is how do we... Um, change the ownership structures uh, in this country so there's more democratic ownership of energy. Uh, Is that of like energy. cooperatives or yeah, community-owned yeah. power? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Our, our worker cooperative in the area of uh, community-owned power cooperative is an important example of one, but we also want to look at ways that we can actually have uh, contribution to clean energy jobs, uh, uh, locally-based worker-owned cooperatives, uh, also, we also want to work out ways that how we can uh, give workers a say in what a just transition looks like. We also want to fill in this idea, what does a Green New Deal look like in the context of Australia? How, do, how does it actually... Uh, uh, people use that slogan a lot. What we want to do is fill in the gaps and put some meat on the bones. Yeah, it. well, I was, that was my last question to you because a lot of your energy, your workers, when I looked up all the people who participate in your um, National Union of Workers, they, they are involved in food, in energy, manufacturing, and so they're all the lifeblood of the society. And I wondered how the new Green New Deal would work both for the workers and for the cooler climate. Have you got a few more, fle a, bit, a bit of flesh to put on those bones? We do, and, and the building of this new union will be fundamentally give us an opportunity to actually talk on a much greater scale because you can see in all the sectors that we work uh, there is there is great challenges for the way that workers transition uh, or transition and then we'll have to transition because it will come it, automation is coming the change of our energy mix is coming uh, the one thing that's missing with all this Vivian is a, is a worker voice and we just want to make certain that we're starting to do that thinking, having those conversations inside our union now, that we stand with the next generation, for example, on the 20th of September, and, and say that, you know, as difficult as it is, we want to be part of, the, part of a solution, not part of you know, looking backwards. And that was Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers. And now we've got Tommy John Herbert from the Maritime Union of Australia. Hello, Tommy John. Are you there? Hi, Vivian. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Look, listeners will be interested to know what work you do. Can you just describe it? Uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm a wharfie in Port Botany, um, unloading shipping containers. Uh, but I, I come uh, from a seafaring background, um, which was yeah my uh, my main trade. But uh, now I'm a now I'm a wharfie. Yeah, well, um, I think you have some experience out on the rigs, haven't you? On oil or gas rigs. Yeah, we um, we used to take supply uh, from shore out to various rigs. Um, yes. And I wonder what is the scale of a rig? Most people have never seen a, an oil or gas rig, and I wonder how long do people stay out there on those rigs? Uh, mo most of the uh, crew on the rigs are on even time rosters. Um, uh, I'm not sure about the actual workers on the rig, but definitely, definitely the crew who support the rigs um, and the 
say seafarers, we would be on uh, usually five week on uh, rosters and five weeks off. So it's um, alternates between that, or, or or some have four weeks on, four weeks off. But it's always been even time. Yeah. Well, look, I was surprised to learn that. Um, I found an ad on the internet for Exxon and they they were very proud to say they had 4 billion barrels of crude oil and 8 trillion cubic feet of gas <clears throat> being extracted from Bass Strait down here and uh, they said our future remains bright supplying vital energy to Australia for many decades to come and I wonder what is the environmental damage of this sort of drilling? Uh, have you got any experience of that? Yeah, well... Um yeah, of course they're going to like look at that from the economy point of view, but um, I think the realities are a bit different when you work on those jobs. Um, it's definitely there's there's definitely like a lot of uh, sort of focus on on the environmental side when you go into those um, sort of extreme environments to work, and they're always saying you know we're really uh, trying to develop um, this project, but take into concern all the environmental impacts, but. It, there's definitely things which um, sort of slip under the radar. I think, I think, I think um, the talk I was I was giving in Sydney, I, I mentioned uh, in Broome, we would we would sail from Broome out to a rig, and before you would even uh, reach the rig, you'd see uh, a lot of dead fish on the on the surface of the ocean, and um, by the time you actually got to the rig, uh, they'd just be surrounded, uh, surrounding the whole rig for you know up. So that, that would be up for miles, you know. You you would still see uh, dead fish on the surface. So you know, it, 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 and those things we would we would go on out and report, and would never hear things back from from uh, the, the company. So you'd kind of, um, you know, you can you can imagine the lengths that some of these corporations would go to to protect, uh, you know, that 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 production and protect that um, that profit. What what's killing the fish and the dolphins and so on there? Oh, the chemicals! I, I'd imagine going into um, into drilling in, in, into the sea floor. There's there's a lot of that's what our main job was to carry out um, different solutions that would uh, uh, be pumped across to the rig. Uh, so they would send over a, a hose uh, from from the rig, and uh, we would connect that hose um, to uh, manifolds on our ship and pump that across. Um, but all of that's like you know very 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 toxic kind of um, solutions that are that are breaking down the concrete or making that concrete, um, which is uh, used to to plug the hole pretty much. So they, as they as they're drilling the hole into into the sea floor, they want to um, reinforce the hole that they're drilling. So they also as they're drilling down, they're also pumping um, this uh, type type of concrete to. Uh, just uh, make sure the the hole itself doesn't collapse. Well, well, look, I've I've been trying to inform myself about this, so I looked up a video about what offshore wind farms look like and the kind of works mm. involved. And apparently, yeah. they live on the ship and they go out. The workers go out to do maintenance on the turbine, then they come back and they live on the ship. Can you see? Yeah. Could you see a transition for workers, for example, like in the Seafarers Maritime Union, presently? Doing the work you were doing there, retraining for offshore wind farms. Can you see a transition plan there? Yeah, absolutely, Vivian. There's, there's no uh, the the job itself uh, would would not be too different from from working in the fossil fuel industries. Our our main job as seafarers is to, to, is to maintain the ship, um, go out and take you know parts out to what would be these um, you know offshore installations. But the, the, the job itself, it would just be getting familiar with, 
with the type of cargo that you'd be carrying. Um, the actual, you know, uh, uh, maintenance um, and maybe specialised job would be done by specialist engineers. So, but us as seafarers, uh, the, the majority of, of uh, MUA workers, um, we, we'd be just doing our, our bread and butter jobs, going out there, um, making sure that uh, the ship's, you know, well maintained, making sure the crew's uh, safe. You know, we, we're uh, highly trained in, in safety at sea. So uh, to us, it would be an easy transition and it would be a transition that um, I think would be better for the environment. Well, I know your union has been quite on the front foot about climate action and uh, the meetings around this September 20th strike have been held at the MUA and I appreciated the fact that they got all these people from all different unions. I interviewed a few of them last week. Um, could you talk to the listeners about the September the 20th strike and why you think, you know, from the people you talk to and from your union yeah. experience, why is climate action important to you? Uh, to me, um, I think it's, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a unionist. I was, I was brought up with, um, you know, the principles that we, we need, uh, you know, fair conditions and fair pay for, for workers and we need to be able to, um, you know, challenge the boss on those on those things and so I, I respect those principles and um the unions have always maintained um get, uh, getting jobs for for members but you know unfortunately you get put in jobs uh that i think are morally um quite difficult at times especially with the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. so but for me trying to uh if we can transition into an industry which is which you know solves that kind of also moral dilemma and and is like has those same union uh, conditions um, and principles I think that's something that um, everyone should really strive for and I, I think it, it is up to us as workers to, to actively change the landscape we operate in um, it's, it's up to us to, to get involved in the climate strike movement because essentially it's up uh, us workers we're going to have the industrial power because we're organised on those on those workplaces to really uh, put pressure on um, on the government, we can we can go on strike. We can um, go out and have these mass demonstrations, and um, that's why I think it's it's, it's necessary for for all workers uh, within all industries that have the capacity go to go to a renewable sector um, to, to get involved. Thank you very much, Tommy. John, I I'm really appreciate the fact that all these conversations are going on in the unions and that that yep. union history is sort of leading you to some sense of solidarity and kind of uh, confidence that you can actually turn it around because a lot of the other people in the climate movement are sort of more loosely affiliated and, and you've got a, a strong foundation under your yours, so you maybe will be taking the lead in it. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that. Thank you, Tommy. So we've been talking to Tommy John Herbert, who is um, uh, from the MUA. And now uh, we've only just got a few more minutes before we say goodbye, listeners. So I hope you've been interested in, in the number of facets of people who are taking place to taking part in this climate strike, all different industries and different regions and people from different motivations are coming into sort of raise raise our uh, blood pressure on this and get moving. So um, thank you to Andy tonight. Um, I'll just thank the guests. We've had um, uh, uh, Vince Sicari from the Edmund Rice Centre Pacific Calling Partnership about the recent Pacific Islands Forum. We talked to Andy Payne from Frontline Action on Coal. 
And thank you also to Beck Horridge for supplying that little audio of the two people who she met there who had come up. And thanks to Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers and to Tommy John Herbert from the Maritime Union of Australia um, about the damage caused by gas and oil rigs out at sea and the good jobs that are eventually going to be available offshore when the wind farms uh, out there get started. Thanks to the Bob Brown Foundation and Democracy Now! for some audio clips that I use there and to Gavisha Mercella for her lovely Italian song. Um, I'd like to remind you listeners that um, take it down if you haven't already on your calendar. 20th of September there's a strike, a global strike. The students uh, for Climate Action have asked us to join. So if you're working, maybe you can go out on strike. Maybe you can go in your lunchtime. Maybe you can take some other action. But certainly note that date and see what you can do. It's a whole week of global action following that. Um, there's a lot on the internet too. I find heart from some YouTubes. You just look up YouTubes and you'll find lots of um, people all around the world starting to mobilise about this. Um, uh, uh, If you want to support any of the organisations, look up Pacific Calling Partnership, Frontline Action on Coal, Wangan Jagalingu People and the School Strike for Climate. And all of those will be on our podcast for you to click on and maybe contact them and maybe support them in some way. So thank you to Andy tonight for helping me in the studio. No worries, Vic. <laughs> he always says that. makes my blood pressure go down immediately. And thank you for you listeners to um, join us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Tune in next week and then stay tuned for the next program, uh, which is what, Andy? Uh, communication mixed. Oh, that's right. I forget the name, but they're coming on after us, so stay tuned. And we'll go out with a little few words by George Monbiot and maybe another song. Thanks very much. You cannot see what is coming. And the incredible thing that the youth climate strikes and Extinction Rebellion have unleashed was completely unpredicted by everybody. Mm. It took me by surprise, you know, and, and I like to have my ear to the ground on these things. You know, I could see, I could see what they were doing, and I really hoped that it was going to turn into something really big. But my hopes have been raised so many times and dashed so many times that I didn't expect it. Yeah. But it happened. And I think with with Greta in particular, it, from her, it came very quickly from from grief mm. into into action it's like she she bypassed despair was just like yeah. not on her radar yeah and and yeah. straight into um yeah. you know rage and like with extinction rebellion it's love and rage it's it's mm. action but i think despair you know is something that we we come close to with you know it's well, something grief is fine grief is all right you know grief is totally understandable sure. and acceptable um, uh, you know, and getting down about it is totally understandable and acceptable. Being depressed about it is, but that's not the same as despair. Despair mm. is something different. Despair is giving up. Mm. Despair is the flip side of denial. It has exactly the same impact. And in fact, I've been struck by the number of people who have gone straight from denial to despair sure. without anything in between, where... It starts off where they say, it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening, and then they say, OK, it's happening, but it's too late to do anything about yeah. it. <laughs> and not for one moment in between did they say, it's happening and therefore we ought to act. Yeah. Despair's a cop-out, just like denial. It's a get-out clause. It's, it's to tell yourself you've got no agency, but, my God, we have got agency. If a 15-year-old schoolgirl's got agency, we have got agency. Yeah.